Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Judy Langhans from the Center for Continuing Education. I'd like to thank you for joining us for our March session of Nursing Grand Rounds entitled Communication in Serious Illness, Building Therapeutic Alliance. I would also like to welcome anyone that's viewing this session online. Just a few housekeeping details. Please be sure to sign in in the back of the room. You must attend 80% of this program to receive credit. This educational activity carries one contact hour. And for those viewing online, please feel free to email me with any questions you may have during the presentation. And within one hour after the presentation, please email me with your name, degree, and postal zip code so I can record your attendance. My email address is judith.m.langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org. Everyone attending today will receive a link to an online evaluation shortly after the program. The Center for Continuing Education values your feedback and hopes that you take a few moments to complete the evaluation. Your contact hour will be posted to your online transcript um, within two weeks, and there are instructions in the back of the room on how to access your online transcript, or you can contact me. And finally, please silence your cell phone and pagers. Our speakers today are Dr. Sharona Sachs, Chief, Section Chief, and Lisa Stevens, Lead Nurse Practitioner from the Section of Palliative Medicine here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Neither our speakers nor any members of the Planning Committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. We are delighted to have Dr. Sachs and Lisa with us today, and I'll turn it off to them. Hi everyone, um, a lot of you already know me, I've spoken at Nursing Grand Rounds before and um, I'm just going to do a little self-introduction and then I'll introduce Dr. Sachs. I've been doing palliative care for about oh, 23 years or so, uh, 10 years as a hospice nurse and for the last 15 I've been a nurse practitioner uh, doing palliative care and 13 years here. Um, so uh, this has been a obviously wonderful job for me and a dream job actually and that's why I've stayed so long. Um, and I've been lecturing a lot on, on mostly on pain and symptom management and uh, end-of-life issues as well as communication. Um, but the reason that I feel a lot more confident today in talking about communication is because for the last several years I've worked with Dr. Sachs. And I have to say that since she joined our team in 2009, I've grown exponentially um, in, in my ability to communicate and my ability to interact with patients and families, have family meetings. Um, and uh, it's just been really wonderful to learn from her as a mentor in, in communication. And so I'm hoping today to showcase a little bit of her work so you can understand what I see when I'm working with Dr. Sachs at the bedside. And the two of us are doing a patient meeting and how she interacts with patients and families is just absolutely amazing and is able to really get to the patient's preferences, values, and beliefs, and really um, kind of create a care plan that is um, consistent with those, those things. Sharona is an intensivist, so she, by background, is a pulmonary critical care physician and has worked in the intensive care unit building programs, uh, lung cancer programs, and so forth. Um, Stony Brook most recently, um, but here she's been a full-time palliative care physician. She has done a fellowship at Capitol Hospice in D.C., and um, has really specialized in focusing on upstreaming the concepts of uh, communication in, um, in the ICU, 
and helping patients and families make really difficult decisions at critical times in their lives. So, thank you. Um, so today we're going to talk a little bit about communication in um, serious illness and how to enhance a therapeutic alliance. Um, our learning objectives today are um, at the conclusion of this presentation. We will be able to discuss how effective communication skills enhance the patient and nurse relationship. And clinician, I think we can use it interchangeably. I see some social workers in the group, and there may be some other uh, disciplines out there um, watching our, our uh, live stream today. Um, and I think it's interprofessional, and I like that terminology. Um, and as you, as you watch uh, some of the video and examples of communication that we do today, you'll see how this can be interchangeable based on, on your discipline. We're going to list um, at least four basic communication skills that we use to respond to emotion after a patient is given bad news and identify at least two examples of these communication techniques while we're watching a simulated patient-clinician interaction. So why is communication important in nursing? And it's actually the central, central to nursing in many ways, especially in progressive illness. Patients turn to the nurse often for advice, counsel when facing serious decisions about treatment options. They say, what would you do? The doctor told me this, what do you think I should do? Decisions are now more complex because of the changing healthcare system and because of new treatments coming down the line, new research studies. Nurses can have discussions with patients and families about their goals, however, sometimes they may not be comfortable. And we miss a window of opportunity to have a conversation with patients about um, their goals. And I'm going to stop a minute and ask if Melanie can help me out. Um, the, nurses, the nurse that is skilled in communication listens attentively to worries, fears, hopes, and dreams. And when we do this, when we, when we approach the patient from their perspective, from that narrative, we're able to help them frame decisions within that framework. Nurses are the constant. They're at the bedside. You're going to hear their worries. You're going to hear their fears. And for those of you who aren't nurses, you're also going to see the same. And thoughtful communication is really essential in the kind of work that we do in serious illness. The nurses can build trust and consistency and are viewed as more approachable, maybe because patients sometimes feel more comfortable talking to someone who's not a doctor. But in the way that you see Dr. Sachs talk today, you're going to see how doctors can even be more approachable as well. Say it isn't so. It is so. It is so. <laughs> but you know, it's hard to have these conversations. It's really hard. It's really scary sometimes to sit with a patient who's just gotten devastated news. And one of the things I wanted to ask you all is as you think about doing this, having conversations with patients about their goals or preferences or who they are as people, what barriers as nurses or other health care professionals do you see as creating problems for you in doing this work? Time. Time. Absolutely. We're going to talk about time. It's kind of an interesting thing. What else? Patients being overwhelmed and not, you, you sense they aren't hearing you? Yeah. yeah, so patients may be being overwhelmed and sensing they're not hearing you. And I'm going to repeat these for the recording. Trust. Patients <clears throat> feeling like they can trust you to open up and talk to you about those things. 
right? So patients feeling like trust is important and trust might be, a, there may not be trust yet. There may be a barrier there. The trust hasn't been built. Fear? Is it scary to talk about this? Do you ever feel like you're not in touch with your own emotions? You might be sad. Boy, this is really hard stuff. This is really sad. This is a 34-year-old guy who's just been diagnosed with metastatic colon cancer, and he has a two-year-old. How am I ever going to approach him on this? So fear, guilt, maybe, because you don't know what to do. New England. Or people who are stoic or aren't open with emotion. Um, that might be a barrier as well. And maybe, you know, and I'm not perpetuating this, but there might be times where the nurse might feel that the doctor's not ready to have these conversations with the patient. But I know it's happening, but I can't have the conversation with the patient yet because the doctor who is prescribing the treatment is not ready as well. And then one of the most difficult things I think, and something that we're going to show you today, is how do we maintain hope? Worry that you may not be able to maintain hope when you're having difficult conversations with patients. So we're talking today about therapeutic alliance. And therapeutic alliance, the definition is when the patient trusts that the clinician is selfless, motivated, and free of judgment, and invested in achieving an accurate understanding of the fullness of the patient's experience, understanding their worldview. I've been using the word narrative. You know, who are they as people? And how do we incorporate that in their decision making and in helping them make decisions and, um, you know, have an improved quality of life? And then also, competency. Competency is important in nursing, in medicine, in social work, in representation of the patient's story, that you're going to be competent in, in knowing them and getting them and representing their story. And I wonder, Sharona, if you could give a real-life example of what we might be talking about in defining their yeah, alliance. I think this is sort of a slippery and abstract concept until you actually think about what it means for you in your life. And so the way I kind of think about this is uh, the analogy would be me going to a mechanic for me going to a financial advisor. I know nothing about automotive stuff, and I have this sense that I can be rooked all the time, and it can cost a lot of money, and I am even worse in the hands of a financial advisor. I don't know what they know. It scares me. I don't want to know what they know. But to walk away whole from that encounter, I would want to know that they're operating purely guided by my interest, that they don't have some kind of a financial or personal gain or, or dog in the fight, that they get me and get what my objectives are so that they can translate their knowledge into an individualized plan that really is going to get me where I want to go, and that I can trust them to do it. And that they actually know what they're doing. So they know me, they know the market or the car, and they're motivated purely by what's going to get me the best out of what's available. And I think that's very much what any clinician needs to be able to establish with a patient in order for them to be able to build the trust that you're right is not automatic. I think the other thing that's true in both of those relationships, and is certainly true in the patient-doctor relationship, and I would argue even in the patient-nurse or patient-clinician relationship, is that there's always a power differential. We know something about their innards that they don't know. 
and we can tell them something terrible about what's going on that they have no way to know. And so the most intimate thing that they own, their body, we actually know more about than they do. And that's intrinsically really frightening. So anything that you can do to equalize that power dynamic and make it very clear to them that you are really there to serve them, you're bringing your expertise to their party, is a key fact in building trust. Does that make it sort of clearer? Yeah, that's great. Does anybody have any questions about that? So as you think about the things that, um, well, let me just define this, actually, or how we measure um, that therapeutic alliance. So, you know, Sharon goes to the, the car dealership, and she feels that the conversation went well, that she was able to really understand what the mechanic was saying to her, that communication is successful. Trust is built. There's agreement with the patient and the clinician about the next step, and you feel like you have rapport. And this is really what therapeutic alliance is. And trust is a primary uh, factor in this. So as you think about therapeutic alliance, what are the ways that you feel either you do it or it should be done by others? What's important in building trust in and understanding patients and their narrative. What are some of the questions you might ask? What are some of the thoughts you might have about it? What do you know? What do you know? Yeah, that's a great one. So tell me a little bit about what you understand is going on, exploring their feelings or their understanding. Listening and not interrupting prematurely because you're uncomfortable or it, it feels uncomfortable about leaving time for them to really talk. Um, and maybe, you know, sometimes they might have to stop to go on and not not interrupting those silences that are important. So listening well, not interrupting, allowing time for silence if they need that. Asking them what they want to know or how much they want to know. Right. What you're going to be discussing. Great, so that's sort of a patient-centered approach. What do, you, what do you know and what? how much do you want to know? It's very important. And really all of those are variations on what do you need? What information do you need? What time and space do you need? What do you want to know rather than what do I want to tell you? Those are crucial because all, all of those things telegraph, I am here for you. So these are just some of the communication style and techniques. All of those things are important, and they're sort of embedded in these verbal factors that have been found in the literature to really enhance therapeutic alliance. And that's discussing options and asking patients' opinions, encouraging questions and answering clearly, explaining what the patient needs to know, not what you think they need to know, but the things that we've just talked about, asking them how much they know and what they, they need to know and then showing sensitivity to emotional concerns. The nonverbals, an open posture, mirroring, mirroring, mirroring sorry, posture, <laughs> um, are also important. Eye contact, that's important as well. Anything else that you think might be important? Say so, yeah, also attention to other aspects of their life and how the illness is affecting perhaps family, work, um, to realize that it's happening within 
and affecting their lives, not just their body. Right. So because you're a social worker, you're coming from that systems theory and thinking about how important it is to think about this illness in context of who they are as people, in their life, how does this affect their family, um, so what are the big picture things that we need to think about? And those things also shape decisions. You know, um, some people who are young and who've just been diagnosed with a metastatic illness and you know that chemotherapy might only give them another month, but they have a four-year-old, you can understand that they want to live as long as possible and they will take any treatment as long as possible because of the meaning because they, may, they want to get as much time as possible with that child. So it helps to understand the, the background and the perspective. And you know, we may, as nurses or social workers, probably less social workers, maybe more nursing, might say, oh my god, I can't believe they're doing that. Or might not understand, and some of you are sophisticated, but the younger nurses may feel that, um, boy, they should just be a DNR. I don't understand why this, this patient's got terminal cancer. And it helps all of us to understand the perspective that the patient is coming from. Um, it gives us, you know, it helps us to be a little less judgmental about the choices that patients make. So therapeutic alliance is actually um, based on responding to the emotions and building trust. But responding to the emotions is really the foundation um, that helps us build trust and create this therapeutic alliance. How do we respond to emotion? These are some of the techniques that we're going to teach you today. And some of the things we've already kind of talked about. Exploring, naming and validating the emotions that you see, aligning with and ensuring there's not abandonment, and then correcting any distortions. Sometimes when patients get diagnosed with a serious illness, um, they have all kinds of um, distortions or catastrophic things that, might, that they think might happen to them, which probably will never happen. Sometimes the fear of the unknown is, creates more anxiety than actually what will eventually happen to them. And, um, and we have to correct those in order to support them and help them in incorporating this information, this knowledge, into who they are and the decisions that they make. Do you want to talk more about correcting distortions? Well, a couple of things, I think. Um, if the key is to really create an environment in which someone feels understood and gotten, the, very, the reason that responding to emotion is foundational and probably the scariest thing is because until they know that they are heard and understood in that way, because almost anyone who's responding to crisis information it's responding emotionally, not cognitively. I think that's what you were just saying before. I can talk about them, the facts with them, and those facts are not going in, and you're exactly right. You can actually look at the functional MRI of, of people in crisis, and their whole limbic system lights up like a Christmas tree, but there's nothing happening in the usual um, sort of cognitive pathways. And so knowing that means that until you've responded to the emotion, they won't either feel heard or accepted or valued, and they actually won't be able to let information in. And so it's key. And that's, it's an emotional transaction that's happening. It's even in its, you know, uh, at its base, it's really entirely unconscious. And I suspect that all the things that we are naming are the things that you do intuitively. And the reason there's some value in naming them 
and in thinking about patients' emotional reactions as sort of diagnoses is because many of us will be carried very far by our intuition. But there's always going to be some patient reaction that throws you for a loop, either because it comes a little too close to home, or it's because it's one you haven't seen before, or it's one you don't particularly like. And if you think about patient reactions sort of in the same way that we think about diagnoses, and think about these response patterns as your toolkit, you can begin to think about how to organize them in ways that are useful for different patients, because different kinds of emotional constellations require different interventions, although all of these are key and all of these are useful. And so correcting distortions, I think, is probably the least intuitive one of those, uh, because it feels very scary when someone, when you give someone a diagnosis of cancer, which you know can't be cured, and they say, oh my god, I'm going to die, and they escalate very quickly into anxiety, there's always this little bit of moral tension. It's like, well, yeah, you, you kind of are, so I can't really tell you that you're not. But wait a minute, you're reacting as if you're going to die this minute. And all these terrible things that you're imagining are going to happen right now and all together. And that, in fact, is a cognitive distortion that's born of anxiety. And if I don't do something to correct that before that encounter is over, then you're going to walk out with a much more catastrophic picture and are likely to do things that are not in your interest. The most extreme of those would be suicide. Others would just be not coming back for treatment because you are so convinced that nothing good can happen to you. And so for someone like that, you kind of would want to say either that is not going to happen because, in fact, what's in their mind, even though they are talking about the fact that they're going to die, they are painting it with such lurid technicolor um, uh, catastrophe that, that what they are imagining is, in fact, not going to happen. Or if that's not comfortable right now, you're fine. You're here, you're fine, and I'm going to help you. This is helpful. Those are the kinds of things that begin to proportionalize the experience. And so uh, when people respond with overwhelming hopelessness or overwhelming anxiety, it helps them to have a little bit of cognitive containment when you've absorbed the brunt of their emotions so that they leave with a little bit more of a reality base and don't torture themselves with their imagined reality. Does that make sense? So these are just some of uh, the examples of how we do these techniques. Uh, naming or validating, you seem really down. Um, it makes total sense that you are angry about this. When you're exploring, what makes this difficult for you? What do you worry about the most? Um, aligning and not abandonment, I want to help you achieve your goals. And you know, even saying things like, I had a patient the other day that I was working with, and I said, look, I'm not going to abandon you. Just naming it even that way. And then correcting distortions, as um, Dr. Sachs already talked about, is life is not over, but I will definitely, it will definitely be different. But let's help you figure out how to live today. So responding to emotions, exploring to find the meaning is really important, because there are many meanings behind many emotions. And the facts, the chemotherapy definitely has failed or stopped working. And feelings, I'm terrified. How can I bear this? And the meaning, the big picture is I'm dying. Will I suffer? Who will take care of my family? So that's really you know, the crux of, of what, um, how exploring helps to find meaning in the midst of all of this.
So once you sort of respond to these emotions, you have, you, you've filled your bank a little bit, and you've been able to then develop trust. And some of the things that continue to help us build trust is attentive receiving and active listening is, is terms that we always use. Accurately representing who the patient is. And then being competent to, to know that you can represent that patient. So by doing attentive listening, you're saying, I value you. And by being accurate in your representation is I get you and I understand you know, what is important to you. And then competency is I know how to translate this information that you've told me. I can represent you in helping you make decisions. And then that helps build your individualized plan for them going forward. So active listening, why is it so critical? Individuality and the perspective of the patient is honored. You give the patient voice by providing um, by actively listening. And you help with that autonomy. Emotional support is essential, especially in times of crisis. And you can build that strong therapeutic alliance and, tr and trust is fostered. This is also a diagnostic tool, as uh, Dr. Sachs has already talked about a little bit, that we can help um, with any cognitive or emotional gaps in understanding. Um, we can give direction to the therapeutic interventions and it's essential for successful negotiation of shared decision-making. We need to know what the hot buttons are. We also need to find a, a common ground. So, sit. Just don't stand there. And one of the things I think that we talked about is barriers. Pam uh, had said time. Well, there was a study that was done looking at whether or not if a physician stood or sat at the bedside. And what they... The, the study was about 120 patients who were getting um, follow-up visits at a neurosurgery uh, floor, and they had one main doctor that they trusted. And um, basically, they had a nurse researcher right outside the door, and the patients were randomized to the sit or the stand visit. And um, before the doctor went in, he got the number as to whether or not the patient was going to be the sit or the stand. And so the doctor goes in, the nurse clicks the time, you know, the stopwatch, and goes in and he either sits and he talks to the patients and does a follow-up visit or he stands and does it. And what they found out, interestingly enough, is that um, the actual time spent in the room for people who um, were sitting, for the physician who sat, was actually 1.04 seconds or minutes. But patients perceived it as being 5.14 minutes. And actually, and I think that's, and I'm not sure about the standing here, but, um, but when the physician went in and stood, it took 1.28 minutes, and then when he, um, but the patient's perception was a little bit longer there. So basically, it just tells us that if you sit, patients will perceive that you're spending more time with them. There's also a lot of other things that it does. It shows you care. Um, one of the things that, you know, I used to say, when I introduced myself to patients and I say, is it all right if, if we come in and, and talk with you? And then we, we're, we're looking all over the units you guys know, we're gathering chairs, and we're the chair team because we sit down and, and we talk to patients. And it, it's no longer um, than it would take if we stood, and it makes a whole lot of difference. Um, and then there was a, um, a 
a qualitative part of this research study that talked about um, that asked questions to the patients about positive or negative, you know, responses, you know, and the patient had much more positive responses um, about the interaction with the physician when he sat down. So investing time up front obviously saves time later. That builds that trust, sitting down, looking at the patient and recognizing and helping them feel heard and understood. It prevents conflicts and, you know, I gotta tell you, there's not a lot of uh, situations that I've had conflicts with patients. Um, and I'm not saying that's because I'm good at what I do. It's because I'm, you know, we sit down and we care and we, we talk and we, we learn about the patient. And it really does make a difference in, in a smooth transition and effective um, ongoing communication. Uh, time spent correcting misconceptions has a very high yield instead of reviewing medical facts. And each future conversation builds on this. We learn a lot more about the patients and we're able to help them with their decisions and beliefs. So we know that this kind of communication is, is effective and it has positive outcomes. And some of the studies show that patients who have effective communications and there's a, a, there's a therapeutic alliance with their healthcare team have a better adherence to therapy, they understand their treatment risks, there's reduced risks of medical mistakes and malpractice claims. They're more likely to receive care consistent with their wishes. And discussions at the end of life are associated with fewer CPR intubation occurrences, deaths in the ICU, and early referral to palliative care and hospice, and improved quality of life. So um, that just sort of tells you a little bit about why this is important and what are the outcomes. Okay. So. Next, we're going to show you an interaction that um, Sharona taped with Max Virgo, another physician on our team who plays the patient. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful video. And we're going to play it through in its entirety. And then um, while you're watching it, there's a handout here. I don't know if you've all received it yet. Um, and if you could jot down as you're watching it sort of um, the patient's verbal and, and nonverbal responses and the physician's verbal and nonverbal communication responses. And then maybe if you can, based on the lecture that we've just talked about, um, give examples of whether or not there was exploring, naming or validating, non-abandonment, or correcting cognitive distortions. Maybe you can pull out some quotes as you're watching the video. And then we'll talk a little bit more about it. Bit of that lip, and I think that's what's causing it. 
that looks like it's really hard to hear. I should have expected that I mentioned. I I pretty much knew. sense, you know, life's kind of going that way, so it's fine, I'm used to it at this point, so it's okay, you don't have to feel bad, you didn't make the cancer be there, it's okay. some sort of cancer. You know, you told me about it might be cancer and I was hoping, well, maybe, maybe I'll be lucky this time. Yeah. And it's cancer, so that's fine. You've done what you had to do to figure out what it was. And I appreciate that. I just, I don't know why we need to focus on me. I don't. Well, it sounds like your thought is that this is where we stop. And my thought is that this is where we begin together to think about how to better help you. So it sounds like there's something to think about past this. I think so. Okay. Well, Tell me what you imagined might happen next. Because it sounds like it just felt like it was a done deal all over. Um, I just, uh, you know, I, I live alone. Um, I, as you know, I'm divorced. I haven't been together with anyone for a while. I've got a few adult kids, but they're um, pretty busy. Um, I don't begrudge them that. Um, and uh, I'm kind of lonely in my life. Um, and I can't imagine with that as my starting point, getting a cancer and saying, um, what is there? Is there anything to look forward to in life? I mean, you know, it's I'm sure there's something you could do to try and treat it with surgery or radiation or chemo, but I don't really see the point when I started feeling so bad to begin with. You know, I was kind of dying of loneliness. Mm -hmm. Now I have a diagnosis that lets me die, you know? So it sounds like you've been feeling kind of hopeless, and this is just a pile on to that. Does that sound right? Probably a sign, yeah. Mm -hmm. And what is it a sign of? What does it tell you to do next? Uh, I don't know. Go home, pick up drinking again, let the end come as soon as it can. I, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be okay. Well, I'm not sure that it sounds quite so okay to me. It sounds like you're feeling pretty hopeless. Yeah, I know. I mean, given what you just heard, I can't imagine that you find that you're going to help my loneliness and make the cancer get dramatically better. You know, it just feels like it's asking a bit too much of life, so I don't... Well, I think you and I can begin to think about 
what a better life might look like. And we can see if there's any possibility that we can work together to get you there. I gotta tell you, looking at you, I'm a little worried that you're not gonna give us the chance to do that. Oh. I like hearing that you help me because I don't feel like I have a lot of that now. Yeah. And I'm a little worried about how to tell my kids about all this or what if I tell them and nothing changes. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be even worse. Yeah. So. so it sounds like it doesn't feel like a safe place. You're worried that they won't care enough or they'll care too much and that you'll be worried to them. Well, yeah, I, don't, I mean, they have their lives, they've got little ones at home, and if they need to add stress to their life, mm-hmm. trying to be around me because dad's got poor lungs and dad has cancer, I, I, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. I wouldn't feel dignified if I was that kind of burden on them. Yeah. yeah. So as we think about how to tell them, we need to think about how to make sure that we prioritize your dignity. Is that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering also, when they were little and they needed you, what was that like? Did you think it was a terrible burden? <laughs> so, depending on the day, I guess, but yeah. overall, I love being a dad. I did. Yeah. I love being a dad. And uh, it's one of those things that you could look back on and be proud of that. You know, yeah. I, I, it, yeah. When I was waking up at 2 in the morning, I didn't like it, but. Um, I love what they've become, and, and so yeah, I don't, I don't begrudge them childhood at all. Yeah, I guess I'm not thinking so much about begrudging I'm thinking about what it feels like to be given the gift of taking care of someone that you really love as a way to express your love. And it sounds like you got a whole lot of meaning out of that. Yeah. So I guess maybe I'm wrong, I don't know you kids, I mean, we we just had a little while, but I guess I'm thinking that there is a possibility that they might see the opportunity to help care for you and make your life richer as something of the same kind of gift, and I'm wondering what that sounds like to you. If they could view it that way, that would be, that would be tolerable for me, I would... I'd go along with it. I would love having them around more. Yeah. Um, I just don't. Yeah. I. I would. It would help me to have. I don't know if I could cast them to do that. Yeah. So it sounds like it might be good to have a general contractor. A little bit for maybe yeah. about how to tell them, and maybe to ask the questions of them that would help us know what being in your life in that way would look like for them. Is that, would that be helpful? Yeah, yeah, I have no idea what it would mean or how they could help me because I've never been through this before. Yeah. So could I apply for that job? Yeah, that would Thank be great. I know this is a lot to hear. Mm-hmm. And I know it comes after a lot of things you lost. Mm-hmm. My work in this, and I hope this work that you're joining me in, yeah. is figuring out how to get back some stuff and how to think about how we can use this experience as a way of saying, okay, maybe my time is shorter than I expected. We don't know yet, because we don't know how your body is going to respond to whatever treatments we choose. But what we do know is 
it may be time to short her. And there may be some things that we got to do to make it rich. And so maybe we can think together as we get past yeah. this part of the shock and awe of hearing all this. Maybe we can think together about what better might look like and how we can get there. Can I take on that job too with you? Yeah, that would be good. I, I, can I come back with one of my kids at least? Or yes. maybe both? I don't know what your schedule Yeah, I'm hoping that you'll help me figure out what's the right timing. Mm-hmm. If you need a day or two to wrap your mind around this, or if we can do it soon, I'd kind of like to do it soon. Yeah, just the weekend would help. And then I could have a chance to call them and um, ask them if they can come with me and just tell them it's important. That would be great. And we'll, I'll be sure to make space for us to do that. I need to ask you to promise me something. Okay. When we started talking together, it sounded like you were feeling pretty hopeless. And it sounded like dying quick was feeling unattractive. Yeah. I got a little worried that you might think about harming yourself and maybe shortening your life in that way. Was I on track or did I have that wrong? No, I was, um, yeah, I was thinking that, but I, I do want to hear what my kids have to say, and I want to see if we can create some sort of plan that seems reasonable. I, I'm not going to do anything. I, I promise I won't do anything. Thank you. Because I don't want to be out of my job too soon. I think we have some stuff to do together. Okay. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. So, um, what did you guys come up with? What are some of the patient verbal and nonverbal communication techniques that you saw? <coughs> or maybe you just need to take a deep breath because that was a sad, <laughs> sad interaction. So, maybe one way to think about this is if we call uh, Max or Pat's reaction diagnoses, what, what are the emotions that you saw coming from him? Because that really informs what I was trying to do. And in full disclosure, I'll tell you that I only make up the cognitive map for what I was trying to do after the fact. Everything that actually happens in real time is purely intuitive. Um, But one of the ways that I think it's really important to begin to think about this and to teach it is to understand that there actually is diagnostic intelligence going on all the time. Because that's what helps you figure out what to do when your intuition again fails. And so let's, for the moment, um, look at uh, Max's reaction patterns as diagnoses and just name what you were seeing from him. Restlessness, rubbing the hands, looking down, and then opened up again. So he's closed and avoidant, if we were being really diagnostic about mm-hmm. what right. He's hopeless, I already named that one. What are the other things that you see? Fear. He's afraid. I guess what I would also characterize is he, uh, in, in his general stance to his life, he sort of expresses powerlessness. This thing happened, and then that thing happened, and these terrible things are going to happen, 
and I'm done. All I can do is wait for, I think the scariest thing he said early on, which was a way to bait me into action, um, was I, I think now I have a diagnosis that can let me die. Not that will let me die, but you know, that was the earliest part of what felt very much like suicidality. And so alienation, nobody, I, I'm repugnant for a sad dad who has cancer. And so alienation, hopelessness, powerlessness, and then the overwhelming field is one of depression. Right? And so if you're sort of thinking with a diagnostic brain about depression, you kind of know, well, one of the things that's true is that when you are clinically depressed, everything is whack. You can't imagine a more hopeful future. It's just not part of what's cognitively possible for you. And you have no energy to get there. And so if I'm going to be useful, I have to, with some help from him, paint it. And I have to be the engine that's going to get him. He can't have any work if he's going to sign on to this contract. So that's a lot of what colored, I think, some of the language. So were there particular words or phrases that you sort of thought were either useful or you didn't understand what was happening or why that choice was made? You said it sounds like a lot. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think that accomplishes, or what was I trying to accomplish? You were trying to interpret what he was saying to you and then putting it back on him to confirm that. Yeah, so it does a couple of things, right? First is what Lisa was talking about is right, and I think we believe that it is. Um, being very sure that you actually accurately get and represent someone and showing them that that's authentically always what you're trying to do mm -hmm. is a key thing. It also, like we talked about at the very beginning, when someone is in this circumstance, when you just rock their world, there's an inherent power differential. That if I'm going to get him to engage him and give him back his power, I have to make it very clear that you can't say anything wrong. The only wrong person in this room can be me. And the only way that I can be wrong is to misinterpret what you're trying to tell me. And it's critically important to me to get it right. So I'm going to state it back to you in a little bit of a more um, Machiavellian way. When you think someone has a slight distortion, or you want to take them a little further in their understanding, you can restate most of what they've said, but put a little bit of a frame around it that advances their understanding or their acceptance a little bit more. What else? So, Lisa, I wonder if you can go um, back to the uh, place, I think, hold on. It's about five minutes and 24 seconds in. Because as I was watching, I realized how careful I had to be, and I wanted to talk about that for a second. You're also sitting forward a lot? and kind of engaging, making a lot of eye contact. And I think at one point you even touched his mm -hmm. knee. Yeah, and that's a little bit, um, you know, silence is extraordinarily helpful until it's not. Yeah. Because uh, you, you, you're always uh, walking the balance between, I want to give you space mm -hmm. to say whatever it is you want to say, but if you are feeling completely adrift, and if you really believe that something has just happened that is unspeakable, I'm going to reinforce that at some point by not speaking. Mm -hmm. And so first I wanted to give him space, and then I wanted just to link again, because I felt him pulling further away rather than coming closer in. 
um, that would be even worse. Yeah. So it sounds like it doesn't feel like a safe place. You worry that they won't care enough or they'll care too much and that you'll be a worry to them. Oh yeah, I, don't, I mean, they have their lives, they've got little ones at home and if they need to add stress to their life, mm-hmm. trying to be around for me because dad's got cord lungs and dad has cancer, I, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. I wouldn't feel dignified. I was that kind of burden on them. Yeah. So as we think about how to tell them, we need to think about how to make sure that we prioritize your dignity. Does that sound right? Yeah. 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 I'm wondering also, when they were little and they needed you, what was that like? Did you think it was a terrible burden? So, uh, depending on the day, I guess, but overall, I love being a dad. I did. Yeah. I love being a dad. And uh, it's one of those things that you could look back on and be proud of that. For, you know, yeah. I, I, it, yeah. when I was waking up at 2 in the morning, I didn't like it, but um, I love what they've become. And, and so, yeah, I don't I don't begrudge them the childhood at all. Yeah, I guess I'm not thinking so much about begrudging them. I'm thinking about what it feels like to be given the gift of taking care of someone that you really love as a way to express your love. And it sounds like you got a whole lot of meaning out of that. Yeah. So I guess maybe a mom, I don't know you kids, and we we just had a little while. But I guess I'm thinking that there is a possibility that they might see the opportunity to help care for you and make your life richer. I thought that I'm the same kind of gift, and I'm wondering what that sounds like. If they could view it that way, that would be, that would be tolerable for me. I would, I'd go along with it. I would love having them around more. Yeah. Um, I just don't, yeah. So what was happening here? Positive reflection. Um, and a lot, a lot, a lot of exploring, right? And I was realizing that when we talked before about why it's scary to confront people who um, have received very difficult news or, or, or who are experiencing their lives is very difficult. One of the core fears that you have as a clinician, I think, is I won't be able to help. I don't know what to do either. I can't exactly fix this. And I think that one of the, a little bit what's going on there if you explore, you don't always have to fix the problem. First you have to name the problem, and then you have to give someone tools to solve their own problem. And the temptation is always, when you're hearing something that feels unbearable, is to run in with the solution, because I can't stand hearing how bad it is. Of course your children love you. Of course they're going to want to take care of you. What if he was a bastard? Right? What if his depression comes from the fact that he really has burned every bridge? he's got, or he really does carry significant guilt from the past. If I make an assumption, I'm actually doing more harm. If he's not ready to acknowledge that his kids actually might want to do that, even if they might, it's not going to be an authentic solution to him. So really what's going on in that interaction is, I'm first of all trying to figure out if there is any help coming from that quarter. When he first said, no, I hated it, I thought, oh, God. (laughs) Max, give me some love here. (laughs) 
But then as he reflected, he couldn't really articulate exactly what I was hoping, which was, yes, generously loving uh, has great rewards, so that I could then reflect that back to him. But until I got it from him, I couldn't reflect it back. Mm -hmm. It a, might be harmful if it wasn't true and it was just my fantasy of what every life should look like. And B, um, if he doesn't generate the solution, it's not an authentic solution for him. Even if it actually exists, it doesn't exist for him. So one of the huge benefits of exploring is, first of all, you make it clear implicitly that there's no unsafe, terrible territory. There's actually nothing you could say. That's awful. It's all just information. And I'm going to name it back to you. So at least, first of all, I've named the problem, which actually gives it some walls and doesn't make it this amorphous, huge, terrible, overwhelming thing, it like, goes in a box, it's got a name. And second, it makes it okay, it's a nameable thing, it exists within the spectrum of my reality. You are not alone, isolated, and alienated in having this experience. It's common, it's normalizing to do that. And then it's actually hypothesis generating or solution generating, and it's a solution that comes from him. And so a lot of the benefit of that uh, constant dynamic of naming and exploring really means that you are always accurate because you're getting your information from the primary source. Mm -hmm. And any, any therapeutic or positive solution that comes from that interaction is one that you've discovered together. And so it's authentic to the person. Does that make sense? You know, oftentimes in the work that we do, we are doing something called reframing. And that exploring and all of the things that Sharon was able to do there was to help us to reframe some things for him, to to um, help him to feel valued. And you know, reframing is tough. I mean, there are times where you know you have to do that that exploring in order to understand um, how to reframe this to make it you know valid and true. I think the last thing is sort of how the whole issue of suicidality played. Because I will tell you that within the first two minutes, when he was sort of thanking me very much and getting me out of the room so that he could have time to go off and off himself, the the um, the anxiety was tremendous. And I wanted, you know, I, I thought, okay, I I I have to get a safety contract right now. I have to because he's bad, and I want to nail it right now. And it took a fair bit of self control to let the encounter just evolve. And as it evolved. One of the things I realized just now as I was watching is it probably would have been stupid for me to contract for safety until I gave him a reason to want to be safe. I, it would have been, he would have said what I wanted here, maybe or maybe not, depending on how slick he is with the whole psychiatric game. Um, but it probably wouldn't have been authentic. And so um, the self-control that I imposed initially was really just because I knew I had to allow space for his emotions without telegraphing judgment. But I realized the secondary gain was by the time the encounter was over, I actually was doing it just because it was part of my job description, but I really didn't have the same fear at the end that I had at the beginning that he actually was at risk. And so I think um, letting that unfold, and I think uh, clinically it's always when someone um, uh, telegraphs either great distress or the potential for self-harm or tremendous anger up front, just uh, bookmarking that that's there and not responding immediately and just taking it away and seeing whether it's a recurrent theme, whether that was a vent, whether that uh, was a test. Those are really important things to do, but man, it takes a lot of discipline to do that. Yeah. 
And so I think, it, it, in a way, it's sort of a variation on allowing people to be heard and really letting them know in the most authentic way, I'm really not here as a needful person. I'm not here as a reactive being. I'm here as the vehicle for what you need. And so I'm just washing myself out of this until you're done. And I think that uh, covers a lot of ground for most people. It's sort of the um, communication manifestation of unconditional love in some sense. And I think that not many people have the pleasure of experiencing that um, past the time that they are young children. And it's a very powerful, powerful inducer. Other questions or things that you saw and that didn't make sense? I thought that the silences were uncomfortable. Like, I was even uncomfortable watching, like, wading through that. <laughs> Come on, is he going to talk? <laughs> so, I guess that would be, for me, that would be a very hard thing to try to do, you know, because of that awkwardness, you know, to let them speak. Yeah. Um, it's always a little funny for me to watch in the moment. Um, what helped guide me, and I'm, I, I really don't know whether it was right or wrong or too wrong um, or not, we sort of have to ask a little bit Max what his experience was, was I was sort of tracking him the whole time, trying to look in different ways, trying to get a sense of where he was or um, what he wanted, and it was only when I sort of did this 360 of, yep, nothing here, that I either reached in either with a hand, I think, one time, or a reflection of what his experience must be. And I think the only sort of teaching point there is it wasn't a question. that I didn't break the silence with a question, asking him to cognitively re-engage if he wasn't ready. I, I think what I said was this must be, I see it looks like that was really hard to hear, which is just an acknowledgement of what I think I'm seeing, which says this whole time I've been quiet, I've been watching, I've been interpreting everything that there is about you that's available to me. And I just want to name it because we are in fact here together. And I it's a way of saying without understanding anything else about it because he hasn't given me anything yet, I understand something about you or at least I want to. And that's why it, it was framed as sort of a question. It looks like that was really hard to hear because if he didn't want to acknowledge that, that gives him an out. That's just my impression. But from my perspective, I'm really wanting to know what your experience is. And here's my first best guess. What does that sound like for you? And that's a way of trying to engage me through words, but on an emotional level. Okay. I think we are almost out of time. Thank you guys very much. Thanks for coming. Thank you.